Radio. I'm your host and founder, Lori LeBay, and today we are going to have a wonderful conversation. Our guest is Judy Cornish, and she heads up the uh, Dawn Network. She's an author. She is, uh, well, I'll get into a little bit more um, of her shortly. Um, she's been on our show before, and she's just a fantastic person and a wonderful guest. So, um, But because we always get different listeners, I always like to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks. Basically, I'm a daughter of a mother who lived with dementia for 30 years, and it was life-changing, not only for her, but our whole family and me in particular, which made me switch careers and launch Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. I really feel that as we collaborate together and share ideas and and really move forward hand in hand, that's the only way we are going to find a cure and find the, the proper supports for people um, on this journey. Alzheimer's Speaks is also a a media outlet which helps companies ex, uh, expand their brand footprint by leveraging all of our multiple platforms. You see, we just don't have the radio show. We have a YouTube channel, a website, a blog. We do something called Dementia Chats where I talk to what I believe are true experts, those living with dementia, and they give us um, our insights. You can find out more about all of what we do by going to alzheimerspeaks.com. And, um, you know, don't forget to check out our uh, projects and initiatives page there. I think you'll find some really exciting things. Or if you're looking for a keynote or a consultant or a, um, um, a trainer, you know, I travel the country and it's one of the most fun things I get to do. Uh, last, before I start the show here, I want to thank all of you as listeners. You see, your likes, your loyalty, your love um, has expanded you know, the knowledge of people even knowing that we exist. And our goal here has always been to raise everyone's voice because we truly believe that none of us can do this alone and that we all have the right to be able to go ahead and choose what's going to work for our personal situation. And so we'd love you to be part of the show. Feel free to call in as we're talking today, and I'll pull you in the, into the conversation if you have any questions or comments. The number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. I also want to remind people that the Dementia Action Alliance is having their second Northern American Dementia Conference, and that's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, from June 20th to the 22nd. And what's unique about their conference is they have a lot of speakers that actually are diagnosed with dementia. You learn so much from them. You can go to daanow.org for further information on that conference. Again, that's Dementia Action Alliance, June 20th through the 22nd in Atlanta, Georgia. I also want to give a shout out to the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. If you're looking for holistic ways to approach um, dementia in terms of prevention or reduce symptoms, check them out. Uh, they do a lot with exercise, diet, meditation, and um, they're just wonderful, wonderful human beings. So let me go ahead and introduce you to Judy in case you're not familiar with her. Uh, Judy Cornish is an elder law attorney in Idaho. She's also the founder of Dementia and Alzheimer's Wellbeing Network, known as Dawn. She published the Dementia Handbook 
how to provide dementia care at home in the spring of 2017. And her second book, Dementia with Dignity, Living Well with Alzheimer's or Other Dementias Using the Dawn Method just came out uh, the first of this year. So welcome, Judy. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks, Lori. Thanks so much for having me back. I've been really looking forward to our talk. Well, you are just doing amazing work, and I so appreciate um, the information that you've pulled together in both books. It's just written simply in in easy language to understand and grasp and break down, so I'm really looking forward to to talking um, in depth about your new book here. Um, But first, I always like to ask every one of my guests if they have been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Well, you know, my first contact, not my it wasn't my family or even a friend. It was actually a neighbor. Yeah, just this lovely woman who lived across the street from me when I first moved to Moscow. And, you know, I, I just volunteered to help because I was, um, I'd actually moved here thinking I would practice law really part-time and kind of be semi-retired. But in in offering to help, because, you know, and I, I remember saying to the daughter, well, I'm not working, so, you know, I'd love to help your mom so she doesn't have to move into a facility. Um, and from that, within a few weeks, I was so busy, I, I realized I'd gotten involved with dementia care. And at that point, <laughs> you know, with, <laughs> you, you just can't walk away. You know, there was such need. And, and, and I guess right from the start, it, it just kept reminding me of something and I was trying, you know, trying to put my finger on it, but it seemed to me that, that even though everything I'd heard about Alzheimer's or about dementia was that there's no pattern, it's just random, you know, there's behaviors and they're really hard to deal with and um, it takes professionals and people have to go, you know, live in a facility. Um, but right from the start, there just seemed to be a pattern to me. And so I just couldn't walk away. And so it took me probably the first year um, that I was working with with a number of people, um, probably, I don't know, I think probably 10 to 12 people that first year before it really, you know, it just popped out to me. And at, at one point I realized that, you know, what's happening is they're losing their rational thinking skills, but not intuitive thinking skills. And, and as soon as I saw that, then I was hooked. Because it seemed like mm-hmm. now, now there's something we can do. You know, we don't have to be medical professionals. If if this is my mom or my dad or my you know my spouse or you know a friend, oh, I I can I can do this, and, and we can have a, a really enjoyable and companionable experience. Isn't it so, funny by just shifting our perception of of what the disease is? Um, makes a total different package in terms of how we react to it. Uh, I, I basically speak on the, on the same mode. It's all about shifting perceptions, looking at it from a different angle. And then that compassion falls in line and we stop taking ourselves quite so seriously. So um, was it really like your neighbor that, that was the first person who got you involved in dementia care and really started you on this route? Cause it's amazing what you've accomplished. You know, yeah, it was. And um, previous to that, my only contact before before I became an attorney, I had I'd been working with the mentally ill in a lockdown facility, and and so I was a psychosocial skills trainer in, in that role. But in the same building, there was an Alzheimer's unit, and this is back in, I guess that was 1998, 1999, and and the people in our unit who had mental illnesses, you know, we had a psychologist and and psychosocial skills trainers. I think there were four of us. And then the people with Alzheimer's in the Alzheimer's unit, nothing, you know, it was just a nurse and, um, and AIDS. And the, the pain that, you know, that, that we would see and hear from, from the way or the lack of care, what really looked like to me at the time. Um, you know, I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. 
I just that and so really that's my first exposure was that experience. Wow. But, um uh, well I'm I'm glad that you had the neighbor you did and um decided to really make a difference because your your first book, which was um really um a handbook to dementia, um, was so powerful. Yeah. Um, can you tell people a little bit just about that and, and the reception that you got from people? What were some of their comments? Oh, really positive. Um, I think out of all of the comments that are on Amazon, um, I think there's only three that were less than five star. But But for most people, to be because um, that the handbook, the little book that I put out first, all I wanted to do was just explain the the strengths uh, of dementia, the skills patterns, and and I didn't explain how to work with it or anything. I just wanted to say, you know, dementia, we do lose skills, but we don't lose all our skills. And so I point just pointing out that we keep intuitive thoughts, and even though we lose rational thought, we keep our experiential self even though we lose our remembering self. And that, that mindlessness is really valuable, um, even if you can't be mindful and direct your own attention anymore. And so for a lot of people, when they read that book, I, it, and I purposely kept it very small and very short because I wanted it to be something you could slip in your purse or, you know, or, or listen to in a couple of hours. And just, just to put the idea out there of what it means to recognize the strengths of dementia. And to take your focus off of what's happening, you know, what people are losing, and put your focus on what people are keeping. And, and it, it seemed to really resonate with families. Well, that makes a lot of sense why it would. Um, you know, so often I think with disease we focus on what we've lost and we we forget about what yeah. is still there or we forget to have gratitude for what we had to begin with that we lost that some people never even had to start with, you know. Yeah, and when you right. when you yep. go there, it just it switches it all up again. Um, you know, for you. Now, why did you decide to write the second book? Well, with the second one, I wanted to give, uh, you know, because some people just want to know what's the pattern. And once Mm -hmm. they understand the strength of dementia, what's kept, and what people can still do, and what they do so very well, for some people, that's everything they need. And then the second book, um, Dementia with Dignity, it's a lot longer. I think it's about 270 pages, but I wanted to... Um, give lots of examples of how it works. If if those are somebody's strengths, and if I support those strengths, here's what happens. And and so that's what dimension with dignity is about. It's here's the strength that I told you about in the handbook. But this is what happens when you start supporting these strengths. And so it seemed like I just needed to tell lots of examples and stories and anecdotes. And and so that's why that one. Um, you know, it's, it's a completely different focus. It's not what is the pattern of strength. It's how do I? What does it look like when I actually put it into action and, and use okay. techniques? Okay. So, yeah. Well, I know I know that you talk a lot about functional perspective rather than medical perspective. And can you explain that to yeah. our audience? Because I, I totally agree with that too. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, when my first exposure there back in 1999 and there were nurses and certified nursing aides and people's physical needs were being met, um, but their emotional needs were, were not being met at all. There was no provision for mental health or emotional health. And so looking at it, um, what seemed to me going forward, when I, when I began actually spending time with my neighbors, and and um, and then started, you know, pretty within months, I had to hire people to to help me because I was far too busy with all these, with um, you know, so many clients. But what really matters if if we don't have, you know, if this is a disease and we don't have a treatment, 
and you know we, we can't at this point we can't cure it um, but if there's no treatment for something then it makes no sense to carry on focusing on the disease itself you know what what if mm-hmm. I can't be cured of it I'm going to have to live with it and and so we've got an you know everybody who's currently living with it it's probably I think we think there's about 16 million families that are caring for someone right now in the United States. And so we have all of these people who are experiencing dementia that can't be cured. And so if that's the case, why be focused on the disease? It, it just seemed like we should take our, our focus from treatment and start thinking about how to support the person who's experiencing it and, then, and, and live more companionably with them, kinder, in a kinder way. And so to me, that's the... the contrast is between medical, um, a medical model and treatment or a care model that's based on what the person can still do. And so function is, is then becomes our focus and what we support. And, and I love that because it puts us back into being relationship-based instead of yeah. this beautiful person that, you know, a lot of times feels burdened because they take on everything. And a lot of times they don't have to. And by taking on everything, they're taking away the person's yeah. dignity and inability to and still participate. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I, I think that that is, is so key. Um, and it gets people, you know, back into believing that there is a relationship um, there. Yeah. You know, even just the term caregiver so often sets people up to think they're not going to receive anything back. And then we wonder why people get burnt out. Well, we've just told them they're giving everything away. And, you know, when we talk, when we talk with people with dementia, you know, they always want to be part. They still want to participate in life. They want to be a benefit to others. They want to live purposeful. And uh, one of the gifts that I hear, I don't know if you hear this, I would imagine you do is, um, many of them say now that they have dementia and now that they've become advocates, they feel more purposeful in life than they ever did prior to the disease. Yes. And they are giving back in great yes. amounts, um, changing yes. people's but lives. It doesn't matter. And, right. But it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are in dementia or whether you don't have dementia at all. I, I See, I look mm-hmm. at, at, you know, it's just we're all just companions. And I really don't like hearing dementia patient and, and yet mm-hmm. there's a whole you know like on twitter if you don't use that search term dementia dementia patient you don't reach the people who you really need to hear from us you know those of us with mm-hmm. strength-based and habilitative care and so so you end up and and the word suffering you know it's the we whether we are experiencing dementia now or not whether i'm going to get it in the future or i don't ever get it i am still me i'm still the very same human being that i am and and when i begin to lose my memory skills and when i begin to lose rational thinking skills i don't cease to be me i just have less access to certain information so you know i lose the ability to retain factual information or i lose the ability to go into the past because i'm losing memory but I, when I lose rational thinking, I lose the ability to project myself into the future. And so, mm-hmm. so I will become, you know, I'll be forced to live in the present. But in the present, here in the present, I am fully me. And if my companions understand that and they become my memory keepers and they become my storytellers and they start telling me all about my, the, the past that I can no longer retain or or access, then I do not lose myself. And, and I see this over and over and over again with, with my clients, that, you know, I, I go, even when they're no longer able to speak, if I sit and begin to tell them our, our memories of the time we've spent together, and I tell them their childhood memories because I've listened, that I've memorized their stories, and, I, and when I do this, they, come, they just come to life. And, and, you know, very often I'll get somebody who at first, you know, first their eyes start to sparkle and then they start to chuckle. And then pretty soon I can get a few words. And, you know, this is activating the intuitive. And this is what 
you know, it's the same thing Dan Cohen is doing with music and memory. It's, mm-hmm. You know, when we when we listen to music, it activates, you know, this part of us that that um, is intuitive, and so the 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 message that dementia takes away the self, I think, is so wrong. It's it's not dementia that does it. Yeah, the, the other skills. Yeah, the other thing when you were mentioning like Dan Cohen and and getting into the intuitive, um, one of the things that I think people miss out a lot on as well is that, you know, those reactions, um, they they self generate, they spread, you know. So if if yeah. a person, any person. Doesn't make any difference if they have dementia yeah. or not. If they're angry or cranky, yeah. um, they can make a whole room angry and cranky and uncomfortable. But if they're right. joyful, they can right. turn that around as well. And we forget that right. with dementia. And so, really, what is our goal? Is it peace and contentment and joy, or is it being right? And is it being structured? <laughs> and is it right. is it about following our routine because this is the way we've always done it? And I mean, I yeah. was one of those, you know, for a while. I was trying to figure oh, it yeah, out I because there, be there, yep. there wasn't help. And then you, you, I, I remember the day um, very specific when I was not gracious to my mom at all, and she repeated herself 45 times in 10 minutes, and I didn't think it was funny. I didn't want to deal with it. I had stuff to do, yeah, yeah. and I, and, and I, yeah. I was just a snot, and I snapped at her, and I felt horrible afterwards because I yeah. knew it wasn't yeah. her. It was the disease. And yet I yeah. I still had that reaction and it's like I I have to approach everything different if I am going to give yeah. her the care she deserves because you know, she wasn't like that raising me. She you knows she was very right. patient in and as little kids, you know, we repeat ourselves and we do stuff wrong, but you know, she was just this stable teacher and leaning post and 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 listener and just allowed me to work through it and I thought why can't we as care partners care companions why can't we be like that and then I thought you know what we can it's just a it's just a more hybrid level of how we care it's a more conscious level of how we care Um, I want to talk to you because this term gets you Oh, go ahead. You know, but more than that, it is, it's, it's choosing kindness. But, but I also find that when, when people begin to understand the, the skills that are kept mm-hmm. and what people can still do, there's kind mm-hmm. of a period of aha. And all of a sudden, all that frustration melts away, you know. And, and like, I think with, when, you, when, when someone loses rational thought, one of the, most frustrating things that happens is they lose the ability to prioritize. So they can't prioritize Mm -hmm. ideas or actions. So all of a sudden you're with this person who cannot understand why they should hurry or, or, or forego doing something because something else is more important or, you know, and and we never think about that because we learn that so young, so early in life. So mm-hmm. just understanding that the skills that are kept and the skills that are lost gives you so much more. Uh, it just it wipes away so much of the irritation and frustration. Yeah, because people okay. say, oh, Judy, you must be so patient. But I'm mm-hmm. not patient at all. <laughs> yeah. So but it's but just, don't you think, too, yeah. it, when, when we teach our kids, we don't really teach them rational um, abilities to prioritize. We teach them through scolding. I mean, we really don't, a lot of people don't explain the rights or wrongs. I mean, it's this kind of right. positive or negative feedback, but there there really isn't a whole lot of discussion, I don't think, that goes on no, as, to, as to why. I think we just pick it up. You know, it's like cause and effect. Mm-hmm. We start mm-hmm. learning cause and effect very early. And yeah. Um, so it's it's not like consciously taught, but but it's built in until we've got dementia, and then it starts fading away, and then we become, you know, our our companions would get really frustrated with us if they don't understand that 
that's just the skill that's gone. It's just not there anymore. And and I think the point I was trying to get to is because it isn't consciously taught or talked about, we don't even recognize it. Kind of like with with Dan with the music, Um, people see it and they're like, oh, my gosh. And it's like we all use music pretty much every day in our lives. And, you know, it makes us laugh, it makes us cry, it makes us, you know, all of those things. And we don't even know that it does that because it's so integrated, and yet, when right. we see it blatantly, right. when we're taught it, then it's like, oh my gosh, someone just popped the bubble, and I can I can see through this whole. Now this whole I thing. see. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's it's wonderful that you talk about that. I wanted to ask you about what to you, what does it mean to be person centered, you know, or strength based? Because you hear you hear that terminology yeah. a lot, you know, when you're spending time with someone with dementia, um, if we're being person centered yeah. or strength based, it will it will impact their experience and ours. So if you can explain that to our audience, right. I think that would be great. Well, to me, to be person-centered means when I'm there spending time with my friend, my neighbor, my client, or my family member, and I'm looking at that person, I'm listening to that person, we're doing something together. I'm not looking at them and cataloging their actions or, or statements as symptoms of a disease. And so when I spend time with, with my clients, I don't I don't the, oh, well, here, this person is experiencing a dementia-related behavior. This person is sundowning. This person is wandering. This person is experiencing combative behavior. I don't see any of that because I'm looking at the person, and when I'm, when I'm with anybody, anyone with dementia or without dementia, it doesn't matter. When I'm with somebody, I'm looking at the person, and I'm thinking, what are your emotional needs? What do you need right now? What, what are you trying to tell me? What, what are you feeling? What are your emotions? And so to me, that's person-centered instead of being disease-centered. And then and strength-based, you know, we hear so much now. Um, we're hearing more and more of this strength-based approach. But to me, that means if I'm going to recognize what you can do, and I'll take care of what you can't do, but I'm going to help you do what you can do, that that requires that I understand what your strengths are. So, and, and for me, you know, I know everything is metaphor, but for me, the, the you know, the, uh, Daniel Kahneman's metaphors of the remembering self and the experiential self, you know, I think that, that describes dementia so beautifully because, you know, I can't go into the past. I can't reminisce. I can't recall all these memories, but here I am in the present. And I'm fully experiencing the present because I've got all of my intuitive thinking skills and I'm picking everything up. And, and so if my companions recognize that as my strength, the fact that I'm fully present, I'm not, I'm not distracted by the past or the future. I'm right here in the present. And I'm also completely open to whatever my companion brings into my present. That's being strength-based. That's working with the strength of the person. But yeah. I don't know how we can be strength-based unless we recognize what, what the skills really are. Exactly. It's all about enabling instead of um, disabling someone's ability. Or, or and, labeling. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. And and sometimes yeah. we don't really even realize that. I remember taking um, my folks on a trip. We were going to go on a family cruise, <clears throat> and... I packed the luggage. Now, my dad didn't have dementia, but he had brain cancer, and so he was in a weakened state. But this this still would apply to anybody on how we disable somebody. And I packed the suitcases and, um, you know, was trying to be as efficient as possible. And when we went to leave, my dad wanted to, you know, haul the luggage. Well, they were too big and they were too heavy and he couldn't do it because he was in a weakened state. And so I disabled him. And I easily could have packed a smaller bag that he could have handled along with other ones just to make him feel empowered and part of. And it didn't even occur to me. So, again, I think it all gets back to that consciously being aware 
of um, what we do and how it impacts others. And sometimes we're just so busy checking our list off and making sure that we're efficient that we don't allow people to to participate. Yeah, Yeah. very, very important. Yeah, in my Dementia with Dignity, that's part of, you know, this is why I wrote the second book was to detail. So like the chapter on sense of value, to me, that's just critical that, that if, if you don't think, you know, if, if you're my companion and I'm losing skills, be they physical strength or cognitive um, cognition, if I'm losing skills and my companion's not thinking about what I'm losing and then thinking of ways to empower me, then I'll end up devalued and I'll lose dignity and I lose, you know, that, that connection with our, our, my very humanity. It's, it's so mm-hmm. important. It is. That's and for I, your I dad think we, to be able to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and I think we have to allow people to have that conversation with us. You know, like my dad yeah. didn't say, say much other than he would have liked to have done that. Um, but he didn't, you know, he didn't offer any, any further comments, but that was enough for me to go, oh my gosh. I will do this different next yeah. time, and I told them that. Next but time. I, I think, yeah. but I think we have to allow that door to be open for people to feel comfortable telling us and knowing that we're actually going to listen to them and take it to heart. Right. Um, yep. Because sometimes we shut that door too, and and so yeah. I think we have to actively have conversations with people saying this is a this is a two-way relationship and and I need your your input and your feedback on on how this is going down and what we're doing so that we're both comfortable yeah and many times Uh, I think in caring roles we don't have that conversation or we don't open the door to that conversation because we're so overwhelmed just trying to get everything done right yeah yeah but you know, no. if if we, you know, once you start, I'm, I just, I think probably strength-based care is, is what concerns, you know, that concept more than anything, um, seems to me to be the center of everything. Because if I can empower my companion, then I won't have so much to do, and I won't be so exhausted. And I'm not saying that it is easy, um, or uh, simple to be the companion of somebody who's, who's losing at an undefined rate um, cognitive skills. And, I, you know, I think that really for, for being a companion, it's harder to spend time with somebody who's losing cognitive skills than it is to spend time with someone who's losing physical strength or, or physical skills. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard. But, but, you know, it's kind of like when you resist pain, then it hurts more. You know, I, I used to struggle with migraines. And it took me years to figure out that when, when I had a migraine, I had to just go with the pain rather than resist the pain. And, and mm-hmm. you know, to, that's kind of a principle. If, if whenever we, you know, there's no way, no way out but through, you know, that, that there are things, there are roads we are going to have to walk. And, and if we can go with it, accept it, stop fighting it, and then look for our companion strengths or, um, you know, it it is easier. Yeah. Well, and I I think, too, when you talked about the physical versus the cognitive skills, I I think there's a couple of layers there because, and not always, but a lot of times with, with physical skills that are lost, Typically, there's a plateau, and and you know, it's it's visible to everybody. They can see it, and there's right. not this swing yeah. that that we have sometimes with dementia, where someone can be very lucid, and then the next moment, you know, yeah. is just not there, yeah. and not not connecting. Right. And then on top of that, it's invisible to 99% of the people, and they're like, well, right. dad or mom's fine. Joe looks wonderful you know what I don't know what you're talking right. about you know look at them come on yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. and so yeah. there's there's that on top of it as well that that complicates yeah. it I want to throw one thing out to you because I personally don't yeah. like the term person-centered care um, I I feel when I when I go around the country that it's overused and under delivered 
And so I have really been using the term relationship-based care because I want people to get back to knowing one another. Um, And when you know one another, then it gets into that whole strength piece, but it's even it's even more than that. It's, it's about respect and dignity. And to me, you know, when you're, when you're in a relationship, it's just, it's a, it's a full, it's a full bowl, you know, it's not a, it's not a half glass. It's, it's full and, um, and it's fluid and it, and it feeds both, um, both sides and empowers both sides. And I was just interested in terms of your, your thoughts with that, um, concept of, of using the term relationship based. Yeah. I I when I heard that the CMS had adopted the term person centered, I thought, oh okay, <laughs> there goes the meaning of a word. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it is absent to me that's what person centered means. It means I'm in a relationship here with a person. I'm not reacting yep. to a stranger with a disease and that that's really the core of it, and and I now you know here I am I'm nine years into my unexpected unplanned diversion vocation of of dementia dementia care, and now I've met so many couples or or you know like a daughter and a mother or but these relationships be it spousal or you know a child parent or siblings or or friends where as as one party is, is going further um, into dementia, it doesn't change. The relationship gets stronger or the relationship just continues to, to grow with each party. And so you'll see these just beautifully um, peaceful and loving relationships that mm-hmm. the outside world looks at as a caregiver and care receiver. But it's mm-hmm. really, it's just, it's just a growing relationship. Yeah, yeah. And um, with the with the term relationship based care, like you said, it it is exactly what person centered care is. Except I don't think I, I really don't think a lot of people know what it truly means. Um, they hear yeah. the term, it's used, but it hasn't been defined, or it hasn't been. Um, culturally defined because you know of all mix of cultures out there too um in the in the caring field in the healthcare field and so to me relationship based just has a a a better bounce to it in terms of of what it's about to me so that's just my two cents there um why do you think it's important for for families to know how to provide dementia care at home i know i know that that's really near and dear to your heart yeah it is i i had to really kind of um narrow my focus you know and at first i just wanted to you know let's let's be more habilitative in in care facilities let's change the way we deliver care and memory care units let's you know and, and even when I went to law school you know I took elder law and, and um, disability law and, and really focused in those areas but you know yeah it's been nine years and, and granted I'm here in Idaho and Idaho has a very low population and I'm in northern Idaho and there's actually parts of Idaho where there's so uh, the population is so sparse that it's termed frontier. But what we have here is um, a real shortage of caregivers right now. And I know we are projecting a shortage of caregivers nationally in the coming decade. Um, But even if there were plenty of caregivers for many families, there's no care available nearby. You know, they live rurally or um, financially, they just can't access. Uh, they can't afford to pay for it. I don't know what our current, I, I think SPAN Foundation estimated it was over 100000 a year for uh, was the cost of um, long-term care for, for a, a dementia back mm-hmm. in 2017. So, you know, it's terribly expensive. And, and so as I worked with families and as, as I came across more and more um, situations, instances where the family really must look after the person, 
I realized that that's really, that's where it's going to end. I mean, that's, we aren't going to have enough caregivers. And, and so we as family do need to learn how to have good, supportive, loving relationships with people who have dementia when they're in our family. The other part of that, though, is, is how, how do you provide good care on a, on a large scale? You know, and, and I know we have, we have really loving staff and, and people in the, in the long-term care and memory care industries, but how do, we, how do we truly have relationships and how do we really support people in the ways they'll need it if, if we don't know who that person was earlier in life and now they can't tell us? Mm-hmm. And, and so... You know, I, nobody can care for us better than, than our families. And, and really, to say corporate care, to me, that's an oxymoron. You know, I mean, if, if you um, look at, like, the prison, the privatized prison system, we have all kinds of issues and um, trouble in, in that industry where, where you have a corporation that is pr- trying to provide a service. And that service includes housing. And the only way to increase profit when, you're, when you have a service is to streamline service. And so the only way to increase your profit is to, you know, narrow what you're offering to the number of people. You have to have more, more residents and, and then stream, streamline your services. And, and to me, you just can't raise or even maintain quality of life in that kind of a setting. So my heart tells me that we should be taking care of our own and that we can, and that life is so much better if, if we're actually with our loved ones and we're with people who recognize their strengths and, and can support us. But, yeah. you know, on the other hand, just economically, it doesn't make sense to be um, taking the you know, this sizable population, it's an epidemic, and it doesn't make sense to be, um, you know, filling a facility with people. Well, it is interesting. Um, like you said, the, the shortage of, of caregivers, that's already arrived, the shortage of employees in, in all yeah. areas of care. I mean, I, no matter where I go in the country, yeah. people are short from direct line staff to housekeeping and maintenance in kitchen to social workers, um, admin, yeah. the, the whole nine yards. I have not met a company that's fully staffed. I mean, it's just it, it's just moving targets, and it makes it very, very difficult. Part is, you know, how much are people getting paid and how are they, how are they being treated? I think our culture right. in many of the communities has changed because they've, they've turned into these um, – conglomerates that are really driven by budgets there they now have shareholders that they have to meet the needs of and you know that that personal twist on how we're going to do this has changed and so you know pressure is out there and so many people saw the big boom coming and I think in a lot of areas we're overbuilt where in rural areas we're underbuilt and underperforming and you know where we're overbuilt the pressure is always put on the marketing person to fill those beds well you know if there's six places that are all going after the same 65 people guess what not everybody's going to get them all but 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 they they flip employees like pancakes instead of differentiating themselves and really training staff on how to how to be person-centered, how to be emotionally and relationship-based when those people walk through the door and, and build a relationship. But things have gotten so tightly framed that interviews have to be formulated and certain questions yeah. have to be asked. And, you know, they might oh have been built originally on thinking that it was person-centered, but it has really gotten away and has gotten very black and white where it's just too scripted and and families families are feeling that and so it's 
just interesting all of the changes that have taken place. And then families, on the other hand, don't recognize themselves as caregivers or care partners. They're a husband, a wife, a daughter, a son, a, a, you know, a relative, a friend, you know, just wanting to help. And so that makes a big difference, too. So in educating people in terms of what this role is and teaching them what to expect and how to, right. you know, how do you be um how do you be a sandwich um generation you know caregiver when you've got kids at home and you're you're caring for somebody um who might be older and then you're still working to boot you know there's there's so many dynamics right, that have changed right. in society yeah. and we really we really haven't had a good conversation of how do you maintain balance and not go insane you know because it's um, yeah. Some days you yep. feel like you're just on the break of, I, I can't yeah. do all of this. And yet we feel this expectation that we're supposed to do it all alone. And so getting more resources out to people like your your books or, you know, the, the um, platforms that I have, um, I think can really help yeah. people. But we do need, yeah. I, I think we do need a lot more family education um, in terms of these roles as well, um, because yeah. it, I think more yeah. people, you know, more people are going to be cared for at home because they can't afford, um, they can't afford the housing. A facility. Right. Yep. Yeah. And the services. Yeah. And that's, so, so to me, that was, you know, that was the, where, where it really starts. You know, we've got the Alzheimer's Association doing a great job of research, you know, and, and that's going to help the coming generation. And and then we've got corporations that are building facilities, and, and then we've got, you know, the medical um, field training nurses and and certified nursing assistants. But the, the gap to me was was teaching families when, when yeah. I'm struggling when I'm when when it's just me and my husband when it's just me and my and my mom what can I do what should I expect what what is what is what is my loved one going through how can I help Mm -hmm. them what can they still do and so that I can address you know and everything I write about everything that I've written you know I had that terrible experience back in 1999 just seeing what was going on in an Alzheimer's unit. And mm-hmm. when I was in law school, I remember thinking, boy, you know, <laughs> I want to do and learn anything I can to prevent large groups of people being um, locked up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and given that level of care, their emotional needs being ignored. And, and then when I started, you know, when I first said I'd help my first neighbor, and then two weeks later, I had you know, somebody else called and said, hey, I hear you're helping so-and-so's mom. Can you help mine? You know, and, it's, and this is a small town, <laughs> so in no time I was really busy. <laughs> so after eight weeks in to this experience, and I thought, well, I guess I don't have time to practice law at all. <laughs> I'm really, really busy. <laughs> and either I have to phone about eight families and tell them I cannot look after their parents, or I have to start figuring out how to run a business and hire staff. And train them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep. you know, but but as I going forward, it just you know it's it's like well, to, you know, somebody asked me, well, why are you doing this? Is it no? It's not in your family. It's not your spouse. It's you know how did what what happened? Why are you so involved? How how did you end up writing two books and publishing two books in two years, and you're not even a, a writer? You know, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, for me, I had to learn how to do more stuff. I mean, this, this was a, a lot more involved than law, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, the thing is, everything in these books came from one of my clients, you know, and, yeah, and really... I, I remember at the very beginning, I decided, you know, looking back at 1999, if that's dementia care, I want no part of it. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. read about it. I'm not going to go visit and hang out and spend time with people who are um, working in, in these facilities. I don't want to see it. I'm going to apply what Ellen Langer called you know, avoiding context. And, and I'm going to make sure I'm not inside that box. And 
so my teachers were people who were experiencing dementia and everything I've written comes from one of them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, I, I feel like I just, you know, I saw a mess. It's like, you see a mess or you see a broom. Are you the kind of person who's going to pick up the broom and clean up at the mess? Or are you going to walk on by and expect somebody else to do it? And yeah. with no, yeah. no background, you know, I didn't even know how to use PowerPoint, you know, at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I you know, had a friend teach me how to use it so I could start teaching. And training, I had to learn how to teach, right? you know, but there, there is a real problem. And to me, this is the mess. The mess is we've got senior care and it's really good for helping people who are frail and, and ailing, but we don't have dementia care and we need it and, and our families mm-hmm. need it. And so that was, that seemed to me that, you know, that's something I could learn and I could do, especially if I just keep listening you know, to my clients. Well, and one of, the, one of the things I like is that, you know, your books are written in, you know, real life experiences that, so you, you know, they're doable because you've done it. And yeah. Um, yeah. One, of, one of your chapters, I think it's chapter five, you talk about the Dawn Toolkit and you talk about four tools for developing well-being, the, um, feeling socially successful, feeling some degree of control over self and life, feeling valued and respected, feeling um, that the future is secure. And, you know, those are things we all want. This isn't just a person with dementia. So this gets back again to the whole person and that we have so much more in common than is different. And then you go on to talk about um, seven tools of the Dawn Method um, you talk about mood management, security in um, yeah. confusion, um, security in care, security in success, um, sense of yeah. control, sense of value, and sense of future. And I, I, the way you've broken these down um, in the following chapters is just a is is just a really nice way for people to understand. And again. With this, we are so much more alike than different. And if we can focus on that, it's easier to to maintain our bonds. And it doesn't build that wall between us. Um, Because, you know, and it kind of gets back to that old adage of, you know, treat people how you want to be treated, you know. True. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, I, I hate hearing about dementia-related behaviors and talking about behaviors because because I'm an adult, and let's say, you know, my client, let's call her Mary. I'm an adult. Mary's an adult. Mary's actually my elder. She's, she's maybe 20 years older than I am. And Mary's experiencing dementia. Well, I don't think she's any more susceptible to behaviors than I am. I think we both are, or neither one of us are. And that, and that really, if I'm, if I'm focused on another person's behavior, I'm missing the person because what's causing us to behave in certain ways is always how we feel. And, and mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm losing certain cognitive skills that I've had my whole life and I've been using them for decades and all of a sudden I'm losing some, well, I'm going to be upset by that. It's, it's going to be distressing. And and so, you know, for what I, at dawn, I use the metaphor of a flower. And so when I start teaching families, you know, I teach them mood management first because the very beginning is, is when I lose cognitive skills, it will affect my ability to change my mood. And, and once we recognize that, the truth in that is that if my companion is experiencing dementia, I'm the one who's programming mood because I've got all my cognitive skills. And, and if I bring good, positive moods, then they will welcome my good, positive moods. And, and they're actually more susceptible because, because experience, you know, if we don't have rational thinking skills and we don't have memory, we can't change our own moods because that's, that's how people change their mood, you know, before when they don't have dementia. And, and so everything starts with mood management and recognizing 
how do we do that? And, you know, and, and so I, I find like when I'm teaching and when I'm writing, I find that I have to begin with self-awareness. You know, what skills do we have as people? And then once I've explained our skills, then I can explain the skills that the person loses to dementia. But mm-hmm. it begins with this self-awareness. And that's, like you say, that's relationship-based. And so what, what I'll see with, you know, when I teach families here in Moscow and, and, and we start going through the classes, it only takes one or two classes before I can feel that they're, they're with me, um, you know, beginning to recognize that this is really about knowing myself and knowing my loved one, knowing what they could do before so that I recognize what I need to help them with now, what I need to take over. And then how do I support? How, you know, being fully present in the present, you know, people meditate to try to get there. So to be present and experiential, you're open to all the beauty that's available. Yeah. And And when you say one of the gifts, yeah, and when you say experiential, I, I think, too, to me, I, I would add on there spontaneous. <clears throat> because, again, sometimes we we have this planned experience that doesn't go as planned. But if we can if we can right. be more spontaneous, sometimes we can get a beautiful gift out of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the one that really breaks my heart is, you know, somebody somebody will say, oh, you know, it, it doesn't matter because she won't remember anyway, you know, and maybe it's the caregiver being impatient or being a little rough, or, or maybe it's the family member and, um, and and they'll turn to me and they'll just say, yeah, well, it doesn't matter because she doesn't have memory, so it doesn't matter. She's not going to remember it. Well, it does, re- it does matter. It matters a lot because she fully yep. experienced whatever it was you just said or you just did. And, yep. and so, you know, that's where this, this concept of being fully present, fully experiential. And I will, if, if I don't have memory or rational thinking, I'm still going to react emotionally to whatever occurs and whatever you bring into my presence. And so, you know, that's where we, that concept and recognizing that it doesn't matter whether somebody can remember it or not, they still experience it. So be spontaneous, well, yeah. be creative, be loving, and, and well, bring good things into, into, yeah. And they will they will relate to the feeling. They might they might uh, you know if you make them angry or upset or nervous next time they see you, that might be a trigger when they see you that feeling. They won't right. know why. And and but that's it very happens. important. You're right. Yeah, very it very is. important yeah, for deal, people to understand. Yeah, that concept. Yeah, that's I. That's what I, mainly what I'm dealing with in security and care in that one chapter, the uh, mm-hmm. the, the third tool. It, it's just yeah. Well, I highly recommend people get your book. Again, it's called Dementia with Dignity, Living with uh, Alzheimer's or Dementia Using the Dawn Method. I think you'll be thrilled um, by picking that up and and find it very helpful if you are a family member or if you are a business professional in the healthcare industry. You can get a hold of Judy um, by her email at Judy at the dawn method.com that's judy with a y at the dawn method.com or go to their website the dawn method.com and um her phone number is it okay to give that out as well judy sure yeah okay yeah. is yep. 208 388 8898 that's 208 388 8898 and you'll find that information both on the radio show and the blog again thank you so much for your time today judy i so appreciate having you with us oh you're very welcome i love talking with you Lori. thank you thanks for having me
Um, in, in wrapping up, again, I just want to um, thank you all for listening to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And um, feel free to follow us or subscribe to the radio show. Check out our website, uh, YouTube channel, Facebook pages. Uh, we would love for you to become part of our regular community. And if you are looking for um, <clears throat> some free educational um, events coming up, please look at the website. I've got a lot of public uh, events that uh, are sponsored by various companies, so I'd love to meet you. Bye now. It's time to rethink. Renew and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather, the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.